Hello, and welcome back to Tour Guide Tales, brought to you by Visit Scotland. I'm Grant Stock, and each week I've been speaking to a different tour guide to hear the eclectic and often incredible rich history of Scotland through their knowledge, stories, and experiences. And today, in our last episode of the series, I'm going to be joined by Jerry Durkin from the Summerlee Museum of Industrial Life. It's based in Lanarkshire, and the museum commemorates Scotland's rich industrial and social history with a particular focus on the mining industry and its role in shaping the people and places of Scotland. So, let's chat to Jerry and get some more Tour Guide Tales. Jerry, welcome to our podcast, Tour Guide Tales. I'm looking forward to this one. Good, Grant. Yeah, it's 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 a, a, a subject that's really interests me for a long time. Yeah, it's it's one that I'm looking forward to to digging into, if you'll pardon the pun, um, because obviously I know about Scotland's industrial history to a certain extent, but when you find out more about how it was and how life was uh, in these times and and in, and in this particular industry, I think it's it's going to be really fascinating. What was your what's your relationship uh, with this period of Scottish history, and and how did you get involved uh, at Summerlee? Well, I got interested um, in kind of the Scottish industrial thing, partly because I was brought up in a little village in Lanarkshire called Bodwell, um, and Bodwell's got a, it's a kind of funny place. Um, it's got two very distinct parts. Bodwell has a, a very well-to-do area. And it has a not so well to do area, and I, I was brought up in the not so well to do area. Um, and I heard quite a surprising little story from someone. The, the next village along, if you like, um, is a place called Blantyre, and Blantyre's got a huge mining history. Um, and apparently, at one time, the miners lived at Bodwell Hall, which is where Strathclyde Park is now. And they used to walk through Bodwell to get to their work in the morning and to get home at night. Um, but the good people of Bodwell complained to the mine owner that they had these uh, working class people walking, working, walking through their village. So they actually built a tunnel under Bodwell, which came out at Bodwell Hall, so that um, the, the, the good people of Bodwell didn't have to be bothered by the miners. Oh, that's incredible. I know it's quite... <laughs> and that, 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 that kind of gripped me as a child. That gripped me, this very idea that people... Um, objected to to other people walking through their village was quite horrific and it, it got me kind of looking into things like that as time went on I, I worked with libraries and we brought storytellers into the library and I got very interested in, in doing oral storytelling uh, and then as part of my my job uh, in the library we, we would get emails from various other council facilities and one of them was from the the museum saying they needed some people to come and work part-time with with the museum and that really interested me and I applied for it and I was lucky enough to to get a part-time job with the the museum and it's just kind of grown from there. So your your background your family background wasn't anything to do with mining? No not at all my father was a a, a lab technician. I'm quite, quite sure if I, as you said earlier on, using the, the perfect uh, phrasing, I'm quite sure if I dug into it, then somewhere and everybody, everybody from Lanarkshire has got some sort of mining history in the background somewhere, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, you, well, you see, you, you're from Bothwell, that part of Lanarkshire, and you know you do think of 
Lanarkshire and the, the mining history that, that goes with it. Uh, give us an overview of, of where um, Summerlee is and, and also, you know, how big and busy an area that particular part of Scotland was with regards to coal mining. Well, Summerlee is in Coatbridge. Now, Coatbridge didn't have a huge mining kind of background, if, if you like. Coatbridge was mainly iron and steel. And of course, if you're going to produce iron and steel, then you need coal. And so the place to put the your, your iron works, your steel work, would sensibly be somewhere that's got a plentiful supply of coal. Now, I believe that Coatbridge produced the vast majority of the iron and steel used during the Industrial Revolution in Britain. It was the biggest producer of iron and steel in Britain at the time. So that was why there were so many coal mines dug around that area to back up that other industry? Well, I think the coal mines maybe came first, but yeah, certainly the two of them were paired together. You know, you can't have one without the other, more or less. So there's obviously a lot of history there, and there's clearly a lot of interest, and a lot of interest to, to keep sharing the stories and, and, and letting people know of, of what went on. And, and part of what Summerlee has is a, a replica coal mine, and also you give us an idea of how people lived and what the conditions were like f for life and for work. Yeah, it's probably my favourite part of the, of the, the museum. Um, we have the, the replica coal mine, uh, and we also have some replica cottages which are, have been built there to show how the people would have lived and how they would have worked. Um, so it goes from the kind of very early 1800s through to kind of, well, the cottages right go right up to the 1980s. It's quite, it's quite weird actually to walk into a, a museum and walk into a cottage that's set up so similar to your parents' living room would have been <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh and and what was it like when it when the museum was getting built for i mean i can imagine you know getting things from the 1980s would be so difficult was there was there plenty of artifacts was there plenty of of, of the existing machinery that you could uh, keep and, and restore they were very lucky yes yeah, people people hand in things that that they've kept things that they've found in their loft and all kinds of things plus there there has been uh, a few of the, the older mines, the, the early coal mines were known as drift mines and they were really just cut uh, into the into the ground at an angle and they would only go down about 30 feet or so. So they worked in a, in a way called the stooping room mining method where they actually cut a room out of the seam of coal to work in and they left great big pillars of coal behind to hold up the roof. These were called stoops. Now, the interesting thing about that was when a lot of the time when, when these mines, when they mined as much coal out as they possibly could, they couldn't take away too much or the whole thing would fall in on top of them. They just abandoned the, the mine. They just shut it down and walked away from it. And they left all kinds of things behind, all kinds of equipment behind, etc. Uh, and in recent times, a lot of these mines were actually opened up to, to turn them into open cast mines. And when they opened them up, they found all kinds of equipment lying about. And this is the, the main source of the kind of mining equipment that they've got there at the museum. You painted quite a picture there of, of what it was like going down in the mine. Give us an idea of when that was and when people were working under these conditions. You, you, we talk, I think we talk about the history that's covered in the museum from about 1800s to the 1980s. Where about was that? What, what, what kind of time in history was that? Well, yeah, so your, your, your early, early 1800s, your kind of um, Victorian era, if you like, the Industrial Revolution is happening. 
and there was uh, a lot of people brought from the, the countryside, from a farming background, etc. Farming had more or less been shut down to allow for uh, sheep raising. More or less. So there was a, a, a lot of people who were looking for work, and these people ended up mainly working in the coal mines. The coal mines were, were really quite horrific places to work. The whole family would work there, for instance, because the miners were paid not an hourly rate. They were paid um, a certain amount for every tonne of coal that they brought out. So in order to maximise the, the amount of money that they could make, the whole family would work, mum, dad and, and all the children. There's even stories of children as young as three years old being down the mine for 12 hours a day or so, just sitting in ventilation shafts, wafting a piece of cloth to circulate air in the mine. There was young children pushing coal carts full of coal that could weigh up to half a tonne around about in mines. Children of five, six years old working down these mines for 12, 14 hours a day, just pushing these huge gate big um, carts of coal about that their parents were filling with coal. Um, they would push them to the entrance of the mine where the, the coal would then be, be taken to be bagged up and marked down as part of their family. It sounds utterly horrific uh, to, to think that, that people were working in these conditions and obviously this was long before anything like health and safety how dangerous how dangerous was it for for these children and adults going down the mine oh it was horrific um because of the way they were paid of course the actual mine shafts themselves were dug just quickly to get to the coal seam and they, they only dug out basically enough earth enough ground to get to the coal seam to, to fit the coal carts through. So these tunnels that the people were working in were often as little as three feet high. So even children of, of a, a relatively young age were bent over. As you can imagine, a working man working down a three foot high tunnel. There, there are instances where people, anecdotes of, of, of ex-miners telling us how they had to actually be dragged out of the tunnel that they were working in because it was so tight they couldn't turn round, they couldn't move. Um, and when it came to the end of the day, someone had to grab them by the feet and, and drag them out of the tunnel that they'd actually been digging the coal out of. It's making me claustrophobic even just to, to think about it. Oh, you should be down the mine, Grant. <laughs> you've got to think, you've got, people would, you know, you, obviously you have to overcome your claustrophobia, but panic attacks and things like that would, would be plentiful as well, I would imagine. I would, I would think so. I mean, people haven't changed that much uh, in, in time, so... You know, it, it, it would be horrific. And, of course, there, there was other other things. There was a lot of cave-ins. There, there was a problem with gas down the mine. There was a prob- there was problems with um, all kinds of horrible things. I mean, the, the mines were infested with, with rats and mice, for instance. They could be... When you went into the mine in the morning, you may, you're maybe going to your work at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and you're not coming back out again till... 10, 11 at night. You know, you're going to work in the dark. You're, you're coming back out in the dark. You never get to see any light. You know, you're, you're down there that whole time. So you're eating and drinking down there. So as you can imagine, if you're eating and drinking down there, there's something else you're going to have to do as well. You're not going to be able to nip out of the toilet, are you? Yeah, exactly. There's no facilities down there. You could be a mile away from the surface and you're not going to crawl back through a three-foot-high tunnel to get up to the surface to, to go to the toilet. All that time's wasted time. You're not earning any money. You're not producing any coal. So the miners used, just, used, just used to find a wee unused area in the mine, scrape a hole in the floor and do what they had to do. But the mines flooded regularly as well. So as you can imagine, that's all getting washed through the mine and mixing with... Uh, it would just be, uh, it'd be like an open sewer that you're working down there. 
It sounds absolutely horrendous. So what would be the, the health implications? You talked about individuals being down the mine for, you know, 14 to 16 hours. You're not going to see a lot of daylight. No. Um, a lot of miners went blind by the time they were even still in their 20s because your eyes adjust very well. You know, if you if those those level of light, that kind of level of light, if that's what you're used to six days a week, your eyes adjust to it and, and it, it was very, very low levels. I mean, so, so much so that you and I would probably find it almost completely pitch dark. But the miners could see well enough to work. Um, unfortunately, what it did mean was when they were on the surface at any time during daylight, their eyes were so sensitive to the light that the sunlight damaged their eyes. Um, and a lot of the, the miners actually would go blind. So I guess a lot of the, the stories that, that you recount and you tell could have been passed on and, and some to a certain extent I know you know we can't go obviously back to the 1800s but some in sort of living memory as well and, and I guess in the area that you're in you're going to get ex-miners and, and family members of ex-miners who who lived in that environment and, and they have stories to bring to you as well that, these are some of the most enjoyable moments in my working day uh, in the museum there's a, a, a girl that works with me I say a girl that works with me she's in her 30s and her, her grandfather was a miner uh, and she tells me how to this very day, if her grandfather's eating a sandwich, when he comes to the last bit of the sandwich, he doesn't eat that bit. He, he'll fold it up in a napkin or a paper hanky and put it in his pocket. And he just does it out of pure habit. But the miners would do that because, of course, there was nowhere for them to wash their hands and they're eating a sandwich. The, the bit that they're holding would get dirty and they didn't want to eat it. And if they threw it away, it would a attract vermin. So they used to wrap it up and put it in their pocket. And he still does that to this day. Oh, that's fascinating, isn't it? That's incredible. And and also, I believe that, that you found out through visitors that they came that, that people were still mining with pickaxes as, as recently as the 1980s. Yeah, in Long Gannett and Fife. Um, there was a miner came to visit uh, and we were chatting at the end of the tour. And I had been talking about how in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, when they, when they started the, the, the deep mining, that the, 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 the shafts that they were digging the coal out were tiny. And they had to go back to using pickaxes again because prior to that, there had been a time when they were using explosives. But now, because they were working in such small shafts, they couldn't use explosives in these tiny little spaces. So they were back to using pickaxes. And then I talked about the introduction of uh, mining machinery. And at the end of it, this miner was chatting to me and he said, you know, uh, I worked in Long Gannet. He says, just before it closed down, he said, and, and I was in coal, coal shafts, mine, mining shafts with a pickaxe working digging out coal with a pickaxe, he said, because the, the huge machinery that they brought in were, were these great big long rigid metal frames with like almost like a a, a chainsaw at the end. Uh, he said, and often a coal seam would take a dip, would take a sudden dip at a, almost at a right angle down into the ground where the ground had shifted. He said, and you couldn't put these these coal digging machines into the into the dip. So they had to they had to send men in, and he was still getting sent. He was he was telling me how he was lying in a a tunnel less than two feet high with a pickaxe, and like um, I'm not sure now. I should be able to tell you exactly what year it was, but it was certainly the 1980s. Yeah. 
See, when I think of, you know, the films that I watched over the years about, you know, that, that were around, and there was a storyline that they would take you down the mine and, and you know, you think of the, the sort of trucks that would push the mine or push the coal back up to the, the, the surface. But there was also the, the canaries, you know, there was always this aspect of get the canaries in to, to check that it was gas. And you mentioned that gas was, was obviously a danger uh, to those going down there. But I thought this was something of old, sticking the canaries down. But, but again... You've, you you were made aware that they were using canaries in the 1980s. Yeah, the same fellow was telling me how um, the the mine rescue teams in Long Gannett still used canaries in the 80s. And he said it was simply because the canaries were um, more reliable than any technology that they had. He said they, didn't, they weren't routinely taking canaries down as a miner uh, where they, they had previously. And the canaries, because the tiny little lungs and they're so sensitive to the gas uh, the first the first little whiff of gas in the canaries would drop to the bottom of the cage and he said it was just so much more reliable than the the machines which took a while to react by the time the machine told you the gas was there you could have found yourself in a massive pocket of gas and not enough time to get out it really is fascinating i mean you know you, you mentioned it yourself just that one wee into this history and, and this whole world and, and i can absolutely see why you, you began a, you know sort of learning more and finding out more about it. it really is fascinating so so when we come to summerly uh, jerry what, what what do we see we touched on the fact that you've got the replica cottages you've got the replica mines how big uh, a, a museum is it when it when it is open to the, to the public and and how much time can you spend there and what can you see when you're inside but it's it's an enormous area grant you 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 have to actually go there to to really quite appreciate how big the place is um, and there's so much there that uh, we've got we've had visitors who come back time and time and time again and they'll say to us that every time they come they find things that they hadn't seen previously. You could spend the whole day walking around Summerlee Museum and not actually get to experience half of the place, to be honest with you. There's so much there. I mean, there's stuff from daily life for for uh, the miners, as I said, but there's, there's all kinds of other machinery there. There are steam engines, there are locomotives, there are transport exhibits there. There's a, there's a beautiful old... Um, BSE motorcycle for instance that the museum ever doesn't want I would be quite happy to to give it a nice home <laughs> so what's the, what's the mining connection with the with the motorbike well it was it was actually from the it was from a worker who worked in the steelworks um, and this was his way of getting up and down to work until we had a crash on it one day and apparently he lived in a flat and apparently him and a mate carried it up into the flat with the intention of um, sorting it and of course we all know what these intentions are like you, you really mean it you're going to fix the thing and he never did uh, and I think it lay in his He's flat for like 30 or 40 years or something until eventually somebody said it was there and he donated it to the, the museum. <laughs> Love it. That's brilliant. And it's these personal stories, I guess, as well, uh, around all these these artifacts and pieces that you have there. Um, we've talked about the mine and you have this replica drift mine. Give us give us a, an overview of this. I'm trying to sort of picture it. So what 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 is what's the visitor's experience with the drift mine? Well, we have we, we created what looks very much like um, an old-fashioned drift mine and it is under the ground so you do you come to in effect a huge wooden door on the surface and it's into the it's 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 in a it's a door in a kind of slightly raised earthen area and when that door's opened you're looking down maybe a 30 to 40 feet tunnel 
in almost complete darkness. So we, we usually brief people before they go in that it is going to be completely dark when they go in. We shut the door behind them and it will go pitch black for a while and that allows their eyes to adjust. However, the, there's two tour guides with you when you go on a tour, one at the front of the group and one at the back and they both have torches with them. So we allow people's eyes to adjust for about 30 seconds or so and then we begin, we put on the lights and we begin the tour. So we'll take you down the entranceway, which is basically a slope cut into the ground, to an area where there is a water pump. Now this is called the lie of the mine and the lie of the mine was uh, deliberately made to be the lowest point in the, the whole mine. And it's designed that way so that any flood water would gather there. And that's why they've got the water pump there. And that water pump would be kept going 24 hours a day. Because especially in the early days, the biggest problem with mining was flooding. There would be, any time it rained, the water just flooded into the mine and ran down to the lie of the mine. So that was a very important part of the mine. And then there's a tunnel that branches off from the lie of the mine and it would take you to our first display. And the first display is from the 1810, from 1810, it shows you what mining would be like round about 1810. And it has a couple of mining figures in it, which are often quite a surprise to people because they, they look so realistic. There's a miner, the main miner there, who would have been the father of the family. And there's another miner who's called the prop setter, who would possibly have been the miner's oldest son, but quite as easily would have been the, the miner's wife. And their job um, was to look for anywhere on the on the sea, on the roof of the room that they were cutting out the coal, and they're looking for anywhere that's beginning to crack or sag, and they would cut a huge, great big, basically a tree trunk, a huge, great big support timber, and um, ram it underneath, upright as a as a prop, uh, to help to support the mine and stop the whole thing from caving in on them, uh, and we do a little talk there and we talk about the conditions and we talk about the, the method that they used to dig out the coal and we talk about things like them eating and drinking down there and how they would have nowhere to wash their hands and the rats and the mice and things. We then move on to uh, from 1810 to 1840 and things had changed by 1840 that's when they'd started to introduce explosives and the miners this was an extremely dangerous way to mine but it was more more productive, it was quicker to get the coal out. And the main miner was now using a, a hand-turned drill and he would drill into the surface of the coal. He would then let his his uh, colleague take over and his colleague, he was the charge setter, the shot setter, and he filled the hole with a certain amount of gunpowder. Now, it had to be the right amount. If he puts too much gunpowder in these holes, they would drill maybe half a dozen of them. If he puts too much gunpowder in these holes, they could bring the roof down and kill everybody. And if he doesn't put enough in, then they don't get enough coal out uh, and they're not maybe not able to pay their rent that week or not able to feed their family that week. So it had to be the right amount of gunpowder. Unfortunately, he's got to judge this amount in almost complete darkness just by weighing it in his hand. So as you can imagine, this wasn't a very scientific way to go about things. And there were a lot of deaths um, happening at that time, if they, they're, they're using pieces of soaked twine, twine soaked in paraffin, for instance, as a fuse. Um, so they're not particularly well timed things or anything. They would stick some fuses in, seal it up with a, a bit of wax or a bit of clay, um, and set fire to these fuses. And they would simply 
move back uh, maybe five or six yards and, and watch and listen for the explosion. Now, okay, if all your fuses go off and you return back, you dig out your coal, you've had a successful morning. If you if f- five out of those six fuses go off and one's a little bit slow and you return to dig out the coal just as the last one goes off, you've had it, you know. Um, it was an extremely, an extremely dangerous way to work and a lot of people were killed doing this. Fraught with danger, I would imagine. Absolutely fraught with danger. Every single hour of every day would, would come with, with dangers being down there in those conditions. And do you get a real sense of that when, when you're taking this tour at the museum? Yes, and it's something that you've got to be quite careful with because, remember, we're not always taking adults <laughs> with us. Um, so you, it, it's, a, it's a fine balance to make sure that you're giving people an idea of how dangerous it is uh, but you're not absolutely terrifying them either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can just imagine. Um, talk to me about the the idea that you give to to visitors to the museum about what life was like away from the mine for for the the, the family life for the domestic side of of a miner's life. What what was it like? I mean, I would imagine it would be pretty pretty basic. Yes, I mean that's where the cottages are are, are wonderful because you can take people into. For instance, there's a cottage there that's um, set up as it would have been about 1910. Um, And I think it's just one of the best places in the whole museum. Uh, It's got a a range in it. I say a cottage, it's a room. You know, that's the first thing that we tend to say to people. You know, what do you think of the size of this room? And they'll say, oh, it's pretty small. You say, well, you know, this is your whole living area. This is your house. This is where everybody left. There's two set-in beds. There's a range. There's a little built-in cupboard and maybe a table, could be a chest of drawers, uh, and that's you. That's that's your, your your worldly possessions, if you like. There's a tin bath for when the family would have a bath, and the family would have a bath, and the, the, the children would be sent out to the well to, to bring water. Mum would heat the water up on the range and pour it into the bath in front of the fire, and Dad would have a bath in it. And once Dad was finished, Mum would have a bath in it. Once Mum was finished, it would work its way down from the oldest child to the youngest. And so, of course, you can imagine if your father's a coal miner, by the time you, if you're the youngest child, <laughs> by the time you're getting in that bath water, not only is it filthy, but it'd be pretty cold, I would imagine. Yeah, grim at work and indeed at home as well. Um, so you were you were sort of touching in the mid eighteen hundreds, and then the use of explosive explosives was rife in the mines, and that comes across. What was the the sort of life expectancy? You know, we talked about the dangers of setting these explosives and explosions going off and people die. What was the average life expectancy of of a miner at that time? Well. It did vary quite a well, I'm going to say quite a vary quite a bit. Not particularly. For instance, you you wouldn't expect to um, a coal miner wouldn't expect to live much past his fortieth birthday. Um, and that was just mainly health reasons. Um, down the mines, they they're breathing in coal, so they're getting you know lung problems. They're they're, they're constantly being cut and scratched. And there's there's rats and all kinds of things running about, so they would get infections and whatnot. Um, the, a lot of them, as I said earlier, a lot of them would go blind. The, the the health problems that they suffered were absolutely dreadful. And even if you didn't get killed in a, an explosion or a cave-in, the chances were that by the time you're mid-30s, your body would so, be so badly affected by the work 
that you wouldn't be able to work anymore and that's when your children would be expected to take over from you uh, and very, very few of them would live past their fort, but their 40th birthday. So you're talking there about the dangers of being down the mine, the health implications that going down the mine then has on you as, as a as a human being. So there's danger, danger, danger. But also just looking at my notes here, um, in, the, in the 1900s, there was approximately 1,000 miners a year that died from being in the cage now this absolutely sends shivers down my spine give me tell tell us about this aspect and, and the danger of of mining well the cage was introduced when the the deep mines uh came about so yeah in the early late, late 1800s early 1900s the the drift mines were really starting to have been mined out the, all the coal they could get from them was already taken out and they started to go um really really deep uh, looking for uh, coal. So you're talking hundreds of feet down into the ground. Uh, in some some cases, you could be like the length of three football pitches, you know, down into the ground to get, just to, to, to look for the coal. So to get down that way, to get down that deep, they, they dug enormously deep shafts and they would lower the men down in what was called a cage, which is just basically um, a very, very primitive form of a lift. Uh, and it was uh, a box with open to open at the front and the back and it would be attached to um, a reel at the top with a, a cable or a rope. And it was a single cable or rope. So... Um, I'm quite sure at some time, Grant, you've been on a, a rope swing and you found it wasn't particularly steady. Well, you can imagine it, these things are not are not particularly steady when they're when they're going down the, the shaft. And also, the method that they used to lower them was horrific. They basically just had a brake operator on the surface who would release a brake, and these things dropped by gravity, so they could reach speeds of. 40 to 50 miles an hour in some cases as they're falling. So hang on, hang on. You're, the miners are in the cage and it's going down the shaft about 40 miles an hour. And there's no front and there's no back to these cages. So, and you're in pitch darkness. If you lose your bearings and lean out any at all, you're going to get snagged on the walls of the of the shaft and you just get pulled out and killed. Um, there was a lot of miners lost limbs doing that. Um, in fact, there's a photograph which I find particularly horrific in the in the museum, and it's a, a miner standing in one of these cages, and he has a wooden leg, and it turned out he actually lost his leg uh, in an accident in the cage previously, um, and he's, he's back working in the mine, knowing that that had happened to him previously, and he's going to his work in one of these cages again. I can't even begin to think how that would mess with your mind. It's utterly terrifying. It really is. Um, we talked about as well about how families, again, just to maximise the the income, uh, and as, so as everybody was was sort of sent down the, the mines from you know mum and dad and to the, the kids to the very young kids. When did that stop? Because that 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 must have been made illegal at some point for for sending children down the mines. It was in Scotland in the in the mid eighteen hundreds. They they passed a law um, banning women and children from the the mines. What you've got to remember though is that children were considered up to 10 years old. Once you were 10, you 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 could go and work in the mine. So I think of my, my boys, I've got three three sons, I think of them at 10 years old. They could they could then go and work a full day down a coal mine alongside their, uh, the, the, the adults, you know, so it wasn't... Plus, as you know, banning something is not going to stop it. The mine owners, 
they wanted as much coal out as they could. They employed foremen to to make sure the men were 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 producing the kind of the amounts of coal that they needed. Uh, and the foremen were paid according to the productivity of their mine. So they wanted as much coal out as possible. And the families often depended upon getting as much coal as possible to to pay their rent and feed their family. So in a lot of cases, a blind eye was turned, you know, and there were still women, certainly, working down the mine up until the outbreak of the Second World War, even. And is that when things changed? I'm just reading here that it wasn't until after the Second World War uh, that health and safety really, really became part of the part of the business yeah it, it, it was never really of any importance whatsoever until they nationalized the mines basically once they nationalized the mines um things really began to improve they gradually introduced things to to look after the miners you know until then all the equipment the miners used for instance was all their own they all the, the miners had to buy everything you know okay the, the mining companies would would uh, provide the the great big Machinery, that was fair enough. But anything that the miners actually used, their own tools, etc., that was all provided by the, the miners. The miners had to buy things like um, Davy lamps, for instance. A Davy lamp will tell you if there's gas present. And these safety lamps, things like that, they weren't provided by your employer. These were these were all had to be bought by the miners themselves until nationalisation and, and the, the, the National Coal Board started providing things like this for the miners. It was also when things like, you know, I was talking about them just releasing a brake to 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 drop the cage down. You know, it was quite feasible to produce uh, an engine that, that would lower the cable at a reasonable rate, but it cost money and it all ate into profits. So again, it wasn't really until the National Coal Board came about that these things were being introduced and there was controls put in place to, to look after safety. Tell me about the uh, miners' tattoos. This is something I'd never heard of until I was getting myself ready to do this podcast. This is absolutely fascinating. Tell me, tell me about this. I find it quite fascinating as well. We were we were told about them, but when we started to do the tours, we were told when you are, for instance, um, when you're working in the deep mines, when you were especially the deep mines, you're lying in a, a, a shaft. You're lying on your back. Um, it's very, very hot that far down into the earth and you would be sweating and you would be getting filthy and wet because the, the shafts are very wet and so your clothes would get soaked. So very often that would restrict your movements and it would ruin your clothes as well. So the miners worked on the whole, most almost all the miners worked stripped to the waist, for instance. But this meant that their upper body was now getting, as they worked their way along these little tight tunnels, they were getting scrapes on their shoulders, on their back, sometimes on their cheeks, on their chin, certainly on their elbows and their arms. Their whole upper body were getting scraped and, and, and bruised. And coal dust is incredibly fine powder and it gets into these cuts and bruises. And as you as you pull yourself along the tunnel, it gets forced further and further into your skin until it's so deeply embedded that there's nothing that you can do to get it back out again. And miners ended up with these grey and black marks all over their upper body. Some of them would even get them, as I said, on their faces. Um, and once they're there, they're there for life. And that's why they became known as miners' tattoos. Now, you might remember these things as well. There used to be village gala days and things like that. Quite a big thing in Lanarkshire, the village gala day. Well, a lot of the time, the miners would have a kind of parade through the through the village on the gala day and the men would strip to the waist as they did at work and they would show off 
their miners' tattoos because basically if the more tattoos, the more miners' tattoos that you had, then the harder worker you were considered to be. You got those you got those tattoos by working hard and not bothering to, to stop. And so there was a kind of um, bravado about mm. showing and saying, look at me. <laughs> a bit of pride. A bit of pride. These, these have all been earned and worked for. Um, and you mentioned Galladies there. And again, you know, that, that sort of evokes sort of the community spirit of, of this particular industry. And, I, and that's something that I do associate with, with the world of mining is, is, is these mining towns and villages around them and that massive community spirit as well. Is, is that featured in the museum? It is indeed, yeah. Um, there's, there's a couple of little film shows actually in the, in the main um, body of the museum that you can go in and watch. Um, and they talk quite a lot about that. And there, there, it's people's people's memories. There are people on film they are talking about, you know, the spirit of the, the, the place and how everybody pulled together and everybody uh, supported one another. And and if somebody what didn't make their, 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 their quota and were suffering, were, were, were needing a bit of extra food or were needing something for this or something for that, then people would, would club together and make sure that, that they were okay. You know, there was a definite... Um, community spirit. They all lived in these same conditions. They all lived in little tight streets of of miners' cottages, etc. And they looked after one another. They looked after one another's children. They fed one another. They they just generally looked after one another in a in a, a kind of wonderful way, really. And the decline in the in the ultimate demise of the mining industry, the miners' strike, and, and things like that. Is is there is there is there room for that on the tour? We don't really cover that on the tour, Grant. Some of some of us, some of the tour guides will will mention that to you when we're on the tour. But it's it's one of those things where you've only got a certain length of time. You've got another tour group waiting for you, and you just have to try and get as much information in as you can. Um, and that's that's a little bit later than than really our our remit covers. Yeah, and and there there is you're absolutely right. There is so much to get through. We're we're just literally just you know in the short space of time that we've got. It's fascinating. But I'm looking at a list here of other things that that you have there, artifacts and, and bits from you know the mining industry in in that part of Scotland. We talked about the motorbike, but there's also a carpet beater as well in there. Uh, tell me about that because this is a genuine one that obviously came from a, a real house, but wasn't just used for the carpets. No, of course not. Um, they, they use things for lots of purposes in those days. Yeah, it's in the 1910 cottage, as I said to you, that's one of my favourite places. And it just sits on a on a chair. Uh, and often you know, the kids will come in and they'll, they'll see it. And it, it looks quite fascinating because there's what looks almost like a tennis racket. And, and you get the kids kind of looking at it funny and I'll say to them, you know, what do you think that is? And, and it comes lots of different, you get lots of different answers from the children, of course. Some of them do think it's a, it's a sports thing, etc. Uh, and then I tell them how, you know, people would had a, would have a little rug and they would take it out and hang it over the washing line and, and whack it with this carpet beater to get the dust out because uh, they didn't have vacuum cleaners, of course. But uh, then inform some of the children, depending on the ages of them, I suppose, um, that it could be used for naughty children because if you didn't do what your mum and dad told you, you could very swiftly get a whack on the butt on the bottom with the with the the carpet beater, and that would teach you a lesson. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be doing it again. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, well, listen, Jenny, it's absolutely fascinating. So many 
you know, wonderful stories. And as I say, we're just, you know, I think that's what's, what's brilliant about this podcast. It just gives people a, a little overview and a, and a little appetizer and and hopefully encourage people to, to come along and, and visit museums like yours. What's been your experience of meeting people who've, who've come to Summerlee and who've perhaps got mining anecdotes and, and stories and interest in the, the, the you know, from the, from their own family. What, 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 have you had any, I know you mentioned a couple already, but has, has there been any other sort of standout memories of that have come from, from meeting visitors? Oh, definitely. I mean, there are almost every week there's been somebody who comes in and it, it, it may be, it may be something to do with the mine. Um, but as I said before, we've got so much stuff there. There's some, there's things from, all kind of industries from mining, from steelworks, from uh, engineering, even down to uh, making sweets. There's all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of artifacts there. And there are people who come in and they'll say, oh, look, that came from such and such a factory. My, my gran worked there or my mother worked there. And then they go on to tell you some lovely anecdotes and stories about how, you know, their parents worked in a factory and they met so-and-so and this person came. And it happens every week, I would say, that somebody comes along who opens things up to you. I mean, uh, we had, and you can make mistakes in museums as well, we had a, uh, an artefact sitting which looked like a wheel, but it always puzzled me because it had kind of spikes on it. Uh, and it was advertised, it was actually, there was a, a, a card on it saying it was a it was a wheel found in a building site or whatever. Uh, and there was a, an engineer who was in, and this man was easily in his late 80s, maybe even early 90s. And I, I was I was talking to him and he said, that's not right, you know. And I'm like, what do you mean? He says, that's not a wheel. He said, have you ever seen a building that when the wall sags out the way and they'll put a kind of prop on it to drag it back in again? He said, that's what that is. He says, they'll put an enormous screw through the wall and they'll screw that on from the outside and it drags the bricks back into, to, into line again. He said, it's not a wheel. <laughs> and we had to take it from display and relabel it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, every, every day, I guess, is a school day as well, even for someone who's got as much knowledge as you, Jerry. Oh, there's a lot of people who've got more knowledge than me, Grant. The, the, the museum's absolutely jumping with people that know all kinds of stuff. Well, um, we started, give us a, a sort of overview just how big it, it is and people need to come back. So, I mean, what would be your ideal recommendation if you were allowing a bit of time to, to come to Summerlee? Don't try and do this, obviously, in a, a couple of hours. You need to plan for this, don't you? Yeah, I would say so. I would say arrive for as close to opening time as you can get. So at the moment, opening time, well, when we're open, opening time is 10 o'clock in the morning. I would aim to get there for 10 o'clock in the morning. Plan your day out if you want to bring a picnic with you, for instance, if the weather's decent. There's picnic tables. There's some lovely grassy areas. We've actually got a a, a, a portion of canal running through the, the museum, so you can go down and have a walk along the canal. On the canal, there is a replica of the very first iron boat made in Scotland. And it was it was used on the canal to transport coal about originally. It's called the Vulcan. It's a wonderful thing to see. If I was going for the day... You've also, sorry, just to interrupt, you've also got a tram as well that takes visitors around. Got a tram, yeah. We've got, well, there's, at the moment, there's three actual operating trams. They can only use one at a time, as we've only got a small section of track that we can run it on. But there's a tram from Glasgow that works there. There's what they call the Dusseldorf tram, and there's a double-decker tram as well. Um, so they bring the tram out, and you can have a little shot, a little ride on the tram down to the back of the site and back again. You know, it's, it's such a wonderful area. 
The kids love it. There's a wonderful play area for the kids and there's all kinds of things for the children to do. The museum regularly runs um, craft activities and things all related to, to industrial life um, that the kids can join in with. Uh, it's just, it, it, is, it's a fab, it's a, it is a fabulous day out. It's my place of work and you would think people kind of sometimes go, oh, it's just work. But in actual fact, it's, it's a great place to visit. It really is. Well, I haven't spent uh, just a short amount of time with you, Jerry. I can tell this is a, a real labour of love, and, and it's something that you're really uh, you're really passionate about, and uh, and I've got a real sense of that as well. And uh, yeah, definitely, when when time allows, uh, I will be there, and I'll, I'll make sure that you're uh, you're by my side to guide me around. I'll take you down the mine, Grant, and I'll let you a good a good tour down the mine. Absolutely. Just keep the carpet beer away from me. Oh, I. <laughs> So there you have it. Another fascinating tour guide tale, this time in the company of Jerry Durkin from the Summerlee Industrial Museum. Uh, and that's it for this series of tour guide tales. You can catch any of the previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and spread the word. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to another tour guide tale brought to you by Visit Scotland. <laughs>